Welcome back to the Deal Junkies podcast. We're here today with Mike Nuss, Dane McKinney. I'm Gabe Johansson. And we're going to do a, what are you calling this, Dane? A deep deal dive? Deal deep a dive. A triple D. You picked that. D- I no, picked wait, it? Wait, no, you didn't. Maybe you I think, said I think Trevor picked that. Yeah, Trevor might have And he's not here. He's in Jamaica today. So, wait, or he's on problem. his way to Jamaica. So mm-hmm. God bless him. It's 22 degrees here in <laughs> Kaiser, Oregon. We're sitting in a podcast studio in a bowling alley talking <laughs> about deals. I'd probably rather be in and- Skivvies on a beach. You I think he's in the airplane though, so yeah. I think he'd rather be here. He'd probably rather be here. Yeah. Actually, he would. He, he would was rather really be here. disappointed. Actually, <laughs> um, but it's fun. We can talk. We can talk crap about him since he's not here. Um, no, today we're going to talk to Mike. Uh, we're going to go and look at one of Mike's deals he's done recently. One of his favorite deals, and he's going to tell us a little bit about how he did that deal so that we can go, hopefully, and do that deal. Mike, tell yeah. or what he learned. We, we, short, you know? we, have short, we have kind of short notice. You kind of knew this was coming. Um, do you have a deal or maybe a style of doing deals that you've been doing over the last year or so that you really like that you can teach us about? Yeah. And I got a deal that's just going to bring all this stuff together. All right. So you got it. It's just you got it. Amazing. All right. Let's hear. So here's what I love. I, when I was an appraiser, I really loved historic. So I got known for the guy that knew how to appraise historic properties. So, which is not easy, especially when you have historic neighborhoods, yada, yada. Um, what I also love is modern construction. So I love understanding land value from an, like a, from an investor standpoint. If you can know what land value is, that starts the game from there. So I love what, knowing what land value is and understanding that and with the zoning code, cost of construction, but I also love historic preservation. Um, and then in the last long interview of me, we talked about highest and best use. And the last portion of that is maximally productive. And I'm also, I wouldn't say egotistical guy. I like to do prideful things. I, I take <laughs> when pride you in- say you're not egotistical, does that mean you're egotistical? Yeah. I, you can't, yeah, if we, if we said you weren't egotistical, then that would, that would count, but you yes. can't say it for yourself. Yes. But you don't feel like, you don't feel like you have a I, big ego. I do like to take pride in doing things differently, okay. which can definitely be taken off as egotistical. <laughs> <laughs> so before I premise this project, I will add to the fact that about two blocks away from this project is one of my favorite projects in Portland, built by one of my favorite developers in Portland. So Kevin Cavanaugh of Gorilla Development. YouTube, he's done a couple TED Talks. He has a couple really good YouTube videos out there. But his thing about maximally productive, so he bought this triangular piece of land in a really good spot in Portland. Maximally productive on highest and best use, you build four-story apartment building, right? Like that's just the most units, your income to cost ratio, that's just maximally productive. So he has an argument is what he did is he did a one level triangular shaped restaurant pod for food carts to have indoor spaces and then a common door. So significantly less construction. What he built was less than what one floor plate another builder would have built. And so, you know, in one of his TED Talks, it's, well, what's maximally productive? I don't run it through the lens of profitability. I run it through the lens of the neighborhood. Mm. So I get that. I understand it. And so it's doing things differently with the same scientific fundamentals, right? And so we talked about art and science. So science is there's finance and there's sticks and bricks and these things have to work. But then there's, well, what's the funnest and the coolest and what works really well in this neighborhood? 
So this deal is a property that came across from us. It was an attorney that was selling it and he did a whole bunch of unpermitted work. And so because he's an attorney and did a bunch of unpermitted work, he didn't want to sell it to the open market. He's like, I need some dumbass who's going to take on all this risk. And this is close to the triangle pod. This is close to the triangle pod. So for those that are in Portland, Northeast Sandy, 28th and Sandy. So it's really up and coming gentrifying area and 28th Avenue is known as Wine Row. So there's literally 100 restaurants on that street. And we're... 20 like between 27th and 28th on right there like the best german german bar in town is right there this beautiful brick building 50 feet from the property so as walkable as walkable gets as desirable as desirable gets and it's a historic neighborhood we've got historic laurelhurst buckman kerns the best restaurants the best it's, what I'm hearing is you like location yes. when it comes to choosing oh. your real estate. Mm-hmm. All of my real estate's within about a two mile square radius. Okay. So I love that. So A, I know the neighborhood really, really well. But what I really liked about this is just in these neighborhoods are built, they're 50 by 100 lots, 50 foot wide, 100 feet deep. That's just how everything is. This property had an old 1910 Victorian on it and it was up in the front off to the side. So it was strategically placed where all the lot could be developed on and this house could still remain. And it's cute, super cute, had a tucker under garage, full basement. The owner had done a lot of work to it. So windows, siding, roof, plumbing, electrical, just none of it was. Is it historic? It's historic. It looked historic. It was the work he did. Uh, would pass the sniff test for oh, the yeah. historic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's better than a lot of the stuff I rent. He, he didn't so. get any <laughs> dirty letters from the city. No. Saying no. you can't do that to the building. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And um, so it's all well from a quality standpoint. The other thing that he did is he changed the floor plan. So it looked historic on the outside, but he modernized the floor plan so you could actually get a top. It's only 800 square feet, two bedrooms, but two bedrooms, one and a half bath with a good floor plan. So you can get really good rent for it. Um, and, and he came, it was off direct mail and he was like, hey, I can sell it for right now. I've got a, a broker. We're going to list it in two weeks at this price. I'll sell it to you right now for this price. And, and at this point in time, we were building a, a portfolio. We had capital. The whole plan was we've been land banking. So this is a period where... Because of this deal structure, we can't land bank it, but we can just develop it right away. And we have capital. We've got some commercial banking relationships going. We felt competent that, well, we can develop this site. And so the zoning allowed, it was like a multifamily, low density zoning. So you could put five units there. Now, the way a typical developer would look at this is we talked about zoning code in that last interview. You can look at the zoning code. You can do some get some really low hanging fruit density bonuses and the way that anyone would design this building, you could actually do six units. So a typical developer, highest and the best use, what can you legally do? Five units. Physically, you can do five units. With the bonus code, you can do six. And you, But now, physically possible, you have to tear down the house. So a typical developer would tear down the house and then build six units and it would be 40 feet tall and it'd be this monstrosity. And so when we bought this property, this is a period of time where Portland's going through a lot of change. We're changing our zoning code. There's a lot of infill construction. There's a lot of demolition. And I'm not a demo guy. I'm a historic preservationist. I don't like to demo. I like to um, preserve. So this was a really unique opportunity where we could preserve a house and Mm -hmm. build around it. So this is everything I want in life. (laughs) It's modern construction. And this is going to be a buy and hold. We're going to build it as a rental. So it can be sexy and it's in this location where we can condo convert down the road. So we're going to build it, hold it as a rental and we'll condo convert. And these units are going to be worth so much money and get so much rent. (laughs) Well, 
there's a reason developers tear shit down and rebuild. Because <laughs> mm. you, you tell the nuances of the code, and and um, at this point in time, I had started a relationship with an architect who I'd met through. We bought another piece of pit property in a historic neighborhood that the worst it's like nazi like to get something approved to build there is you have to like sign over your child um and i've been working with him because he had a building approved there until i met him we're just working on this other building so we're like hey we got this other one why don't you design this and so he hand sketched this sketch like this kind of l shape so you have the house here and an l shaped building behind it and it's like that's sexy and it's two stories and then on the corner of it it's three stories and then that third story is like a master suite with the rooftop deck and i'm just because i'm envisioning condos mm -hmm. the maximum value and so okay we're going to develop that and we're going to go down the road and and i learned a lot of lessons about picking the right contractor picking the right architect so some of the complications that we had in that going down that road was um Typically, when an architect designs a residential structure, they don't they design it for the minimalist. And so essentially, here's what you're going to build. You're going to make a lot of field decisions when you go out there. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the actual windows? What is the Tyvek wrapping? What's your weatherproofing going to be like? I didn't know that because this was my first large project like that. I'd done single family homes, but not in a, a small apartment building. And the way our code works is when you're three units or more, your commercial code, not residential code. So residential code, you just do a lot of stuff in the field. This is commercial code. And he got really tight with the design to the point where the waterproofing scenario was highly detailed that no residential contractor builds. <laughs> And he had this really complicated siding design with the membrane and spacing and just to build really cool things costs, costs a lot of fucking money. Yeah. And not only that, well, maybe the code isn't ready for those well, things. T tell me, why did he design it like that? Was that at your direction that you wanted something really modern and cool? Or was that this kind of just like he just sort of went nuts with it and... A little bit of both. Okay. A little bit of He both. was having fun. He was having fun. <laughs> and again, I didn't really, at that point in time, I didn't understand the level of detail commercial drawings versus okay. residential. Okay. And so like one issue that we got into, so there's some some issues that we got into. One of them was the level of detail, the wrapping around the windows. And so our contractor didn't do it to that level of windows, the wrapping and the siding's already up. And now we need to have a work order change. And then there's... So you got to pull the siding off to rewrap the windows or? or get him to release his drawing. Like he had a, in this scenario, I was comfortable with how they built it. I didn't think they needed to go to the level of design, but it's his drawings. Mm -hmm. So now he had a release. So oh. getting a release of liability. Oh, so we oh, can yeah. move. Just, just say you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't build it the way he drew it. So it's not his fault. It's not his fault. Yeah. Correct. And as the developer, my decision is, well, do I go to my contractor, pull everything off, build it how he drew it? Or do I say, I'm comfortable with how you built it. Let me deal with the, the architect. So that was one issue that we had to deal with. Another issue was, um, this has it's a flat roof with parapets. Well, what's a parapet? I was about to say. Yeah, it's that little space. So the roof's here, but the building looks this tall, but the roof behind yeah. it's only this so that space there. Tiny little like what would be where the attic is, but it's only a foot tall, 18 yeah. inches or something. Yep, exactly. So your roof system is in there. Yeah, correct. 
And so what I'm getting into is a height issue. So whenever you hire an architect, there's this bullshit fee on every project where they charge you for zoning code. Like, I hate this. I'm hiring you because you know the fucking zoning code. Right. You know this. So there's always this zoning code research portion of the fee that's built in and you just pay it because, well, I do want you to pay attention to the zoning code. So there's two complications in this one project. One, we have the existing structure there and then we're building a new structure behind it. And so we did all of our separate site planning based on separation of building code. Well, what the architect didn't realize is, well, when we build this building back here, the zoning code is going to put in a implied lot line. Mm. So even though there is no lot line, they're going to imply a lot. And line. then you're going to have setbacks. Exactly. And so now we built our, based on fire code, the building separations, not expecting a lot line to be considered. Oh, now there's a lot line. Well, now both of these structures are within the setback. And now you need to do X, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And so and for the existing house, we had to fireproof that entire back end, but we actually had to pay 3,000, another adjustment, another fucking zoning code adjustment. We had to get permission to just do that level of work. What, what's fireproofing mean? What, do, what are you uh, doing in the back of the So building? you take all the siding off and you put in a thicker layer of uh, membrane on the back side. Okay. Or on the inside, drywall. So instead of using half inch sheetrock, use three quarter inch okay. sheetrock. Um, so, and that's common. You fire separate new units so you got three-quarter sheetrock on the inside it's not a it's it's retrofitting older buildings where it sucks so that was a problem you know there's a delay there there's costs associated with that delay and then there's physical cost in actually physically improving the building so there's one issue another issue is we have um uh uh, uh mini splits so mini splits were our heating system i don't want cadet i don't want fucking cadet heaters i want acs nice building and here's the other thing i'm driving around town and these things are hanging on the sides of the buildings put it on the side of the, oh no you can't put it in the side of the building it can't be in the setback what do you, see it all over fucking town oh no, no 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 this is the zoning code so he designs them to go on the roof the, the little unit that connects to your mini split. Like this yeah. is a the little condenser. A ductless, like a little copper tube exactly. runs. It's it's like a two by two or two by three square. And it just sits somewhere. Yeah, it looks like a little mini. They want you to set it out front. Yeah, so they put it on the roof. So here's the problem with the zoning code. Well, now they're too close to the roof. And now you need to have a railing system because it needs to be safe when someone goes, goes up, up to there. fix it. So now the design aesthetic's gone because now you have a fucking railing on top, on top of, of your a roof. parapet. Yeah. Now here's the other scenario. You're going to put railing on a roof. That needs to be structurally fucking engineered. So now to do the heating system that I didn't want that he told me we had to have, which I later found out I was correct and he was incorrect, caused another delay and more engineering and more fucking cost. Not to mention, now that rooftop deck has two fucking condenser units, so when someone's enjoying their AC in the middle of the summer and you want to see your sunset, you listen to their... So many stupid little design changes that now as a developer going through the process... And again, I've flipped so many houses and I've built single-family homes and I, you know, like I've... The fine level of details when you're actually building something, especially when you build to hold, not build to sell, um, you learn a lot of scenarios. And so one thing there is really getting in on the front end before you even submit any drawings of getting your contractor involved. Like we were getting our contractor involved, but the we weren't getting this level of, well, this is problematic, that's problematic. Mm -hmm. And so having a building professional work with you as you're doing the design portion of it makes a lot 
a sense. And that's yeah. where those build to suit companies where they in in-house design, they do that entire process for you. There's synergy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You want a builder and an architect that can work hand in hand yeah. and speak each other's language and know mm-hmm. what you're trying to accomplish and find a common ground to get yeah. it done. Cause the builder's going to tell your architect like, ah, that doesn't work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The architect's going to go, yeah, it does. I mean, they see, they're seeing it from a, a different angle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where's that project at now? So it's done. Yeah. So it's done and finished and it's great. You I mean, it. the finished product is everything that I wanted it to be. So we get really good rent from the house. We designed really, really small units as well. So our one bedroom units are like 405 square feet. They might even be under 400 square feet. They're small. Um, two bedroom unit at like 500 square feet and then a three bedroom, two bath unit, it's under 800 square feet. Mm. So really tight units, but we get four bucks a square foot in rent. So the rent is significantly high. And again, because it's really well built, it's very, it's, it looks sexy. You drive by, it fits in really, really well. Um, it's in a really, really good walkable location. And kind of what's really cool about this little spot is, um, I'm one house in from the corner. The corner, when we bought the property, had been divided by the previous owner. So they divided it, and then they built a modern house with an ADU. They were, like, on the modern housing tour. And then they had this shitty old duplex on the corner when I bought mine. So in the process of our de- us developing our site, they tore that down and then built a really cool modern duplex as well. So you have their modern house in from the corner their modern duplex on the corner and then you have our victorian that kind of st- stuck in there and then our five unit or four unit behind and so you and then you have all historic across the street and then i even remember when before i was going to build it because you hear everyone's the neighbors love to tell you what their opinions are and i was i don't wouldn't say dumb enough but i lived there in the house while we were developing the prop the property so i rented it from our company because this is a great place to live well i always got to have the conversation with the neighbor you're gonna build this monstrosity back there and you're gonna do this and we're not gonna have any parking i'm looking i'm like your do your 120 year old duplex is bigger than the four units i'm gonna build mm-hmm. you have no parking you have people over all the time <laughs> it's just so you're dealing with this process but at the end of the time at the end of the project it fits seamlessly to the neighborhood. It's maximally pro- productive, in my opinion, in that we kept the original architecture there. We didn't overdevelop the site. We didn't add too much to density. It's only two stories for the most part, and then one story where the house is. So it's not scale wise, it's not really overdeveloping the neighborhood. And it's a really good portfolio piece for the asset. It created a lot of equity in the build out. It creates, it's probably one of our better cash flowing properties. And you got the condo approval, or has that, it been condo That'll be yet? down the road. Because okay. you're holding it now so later you'll go through the condo process to sell off individually will be your exit strategy so to recap just a little bit you have a machine it generates leads one of the leads is there's an attorney who did some work on a beautiful victorian home which you love because of the historic preservation it sits on some extra land just in the right spot to where you can develop more units behind and do your modern build out you had a lot of learning lessons with an architect where you guys kind of came up with a dream but you wish you had somebody that was more seamlessly integrated with your builder so that they could see some of the pitfalls that were coming in the design that was placed so up to that point, tell us, go back to the economics of the deal just a little bit. Sounds like the reason why this is one of your favorite deals is because it was a challenge. You love the neighborhood. You even lived in the house. Tell us 
how did you identify this as a profitable project? How did you finance the project? And why did you decide to hold it the way you're holding it and then to later exit with a condo strategy? Yeah, really good questions. Um, So what I liked about this is we were able to buy the entire piece of property for about what the land was worth, but it had an already renovated house on it that could generate income. So even if I wasn't going to move in there, there's still an income stream that could help pay for the more Covered land play. Covered land play. So it would have been in, it would have been negative cash flow because I think we paid just under five hundred for it. And at that time, um, I think they were going to list it at like five thirty or five fifty. He would have sold it for just under five hundred. Land value is for this spot five fifty. I think the land was appraised at five fifty one. So you're buying the house and land for less than what the land itself is worth. Yeah, which is that's essentially as a single family home, and that's the economic. So here we go. Real estate doesn't appreciate the land. Sticks and bricks depreciate the land appreciates. And so we're just in a scenario where you go to these neighborhoods. Why are livable homes getting torn down? Because the improvements depreciated and the value got to the point where uh, developers will pay more as as much as a home. Mm-hmm. And so that's what this scenario was. So a, a homeowner would have paid a little bit more and a developer would have paid a little bit more. This, Seller just isn't paying commissions, and that's where our break was. What I really also liked about this is the attorney was about to retire, and they didn't actually have plans. And so I wasn't, again, brokers get in the way. Whatever brokers always want to do, let's fucking close tomorrow. All right? There, well, buyers. We, is, we need to get paid. <laughs> yeah, but buyers and sellers <laughs> rarely, <laughs> rarely ever is it the buyer or seller driving the timeline. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah, the urgency to close is always... To, broker driven in my opinion yeah and being a good acquisition guy what did i saw i saw someone who just wanted to sell but didn't need the money and didn't know where they're going sure you solved the problem yeah so we just structured it as an option um so rather than you know so we did it we structured as a six-month option which in that scenario we would have got hard money because of the type of property it was so we would have paid you know eight percent interest for six months four percent twenty grand so that saves us twenty grand and then the other part of it is well then you just get them committed to you and then you extend it to an 18 month option. So I saw the value of not having to close right away, which gave us the ability to entitle it. And when you're ever talking about a land play, when you're going to develop it right away, delay closing as far off as possible and get all that entitlement out of the way. Cause that's where your unknowns are in the timeline. That's when a lot of your unknowns are found out. And so if you're not paying interest, that's super helpful. We, we call that building yourself a runway. Yeah. Bu- yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and that can be done seller financing, short-term seller financing, delayed closing, options, lease, like so many different ways to do that, just what's appropriate for the scenario. And and to your point, having no brokers being involved helped you to relax those timelines and build yourself a longer runway because you knew the seller didn't need the money right away. And so there wasn't a broker with his handout going, but I want to get paid. So you were able to, you were able to buy yourself more time to go through and do your pre-app meeting, your due diligence, work on your plans, get your approvals and get a lot further down that process. So you didn't close on the home and then find out afterwards you couldn't build what you wanted to build. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So I had all those elements and there's essentially three things I look for. So I want expandability. I want to be able to create value. So force appreciation. Um, Or I want below market terms like seller financing for a rental. So those are the scenarios I'm working for. So this was a scenario where we had the expandability. So I don't mind paying market value because we had the expandability and then we had the deal structure that allowed us to close later. So there's kind of all those elements. But the seller didn't carry anything. You you funded funded this with 
uh, hard money or did you have yeah, a construction so lender going option. in? So I think we gave him like 20 grand option consideration. Um, and he drew up all the paperwork. So we 20 grand out of pocket and then we fund the entitlement. And so to get to approved permits, that probably cost us another 40-ish grand with architect fees, engineering fees, and then intake fees. And then the big payment, you're... And I think it was like a $95,000 outtake fee for the permits comes when those permits are approved and issued. So you get up to that big, huge check. So you're spending money, yeah, out-of-pocket money, yeah. real that, money. Yeah, and that's the thing with development is it's not like flipping a house or, or getting a seller finance rent. You have to have liquidity. You have to have cash. And you could have gotten down the road on that 30, 40, 50 K and then hit a wall at some point and not mm -hmm. been able to build and that mm -hmm. would have been your risk but you felt like your chance of getting it built was good yeah. you and so it was worth spending that money as yeah. you went so you financed it so then when it once it's complete do you have like does it convert to perm do you go to a whole different loan now or how does that work yeah we at this point in time so I, 2019 is when we took out our our construction financing and so when you're taking out construction financing you have the option to you know you get a construction loan and then you risk it to refinance on the back end or you get a construction to perm, perm. and so we did a construction to perm so we just knew immediately what our we were rolling into from a, a long-term debt play before it was done okay yeah so you're in a perm loan now yep yeah it's property like stabilized five percent interest you love the property and you said it's kind of more of a long-term thing for yeah. you do you plan to hold forever or do you have an exit like what's your exit strategy on this yeah my mentality is changing around that <laughs> um usually does yeah yeah you know as i was building out the portfolio the whole focus is on expansion through acquisition and I think there's power in 1031 exchanges. I think there's power, I not even think, there's power in velocity of mm -hmm. money. And I think when you just don't sell, you lose out in the velocity of money, which is fine if you're aggressively building your portfolio. Um, and I've been in the aggressively building the portfolio scenario, and I still intend on being aggressively building the portfolio, but I also don't want to miss out on that low hanging fruit of the velocity of money. And so I've always appreciated stacking equity and so I do think we'll get a lot more aggressive on the selling and the stacking of equity. But the process to do that is evaluating your portfolio for the return on equity. And so you're identifying what it is that you're going to sell mm -hmm. and then sell the worst ones every year. So then you're upgrading your portfolio as you're adding the velocity. This one's pretty good from a return on equity standpoint. And then there's no maintenance because it's all new. So it's probably a, a, the higher end of the list of stuff that will get sold. So here, here's a chicken or the egg question for you. Do you identify the properties you feel in your portfolio are not giving you the return on equity you're looking for and then target those for disposition and go out and look for an up leg or do you just continually look for deals and when you find the deal you really want, go back and look at your real estate schedule and say, well, I like the new one better than the old one. These are the ones we're going to sell to go into it. Yeah. All the exchanges have been reactionary. For okay. Me. Yeah. So nothing- You found a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Or like I bought one, so I bought a car- <laughs> This might have been a fun deal. Bought a car wash that we're going to do as a food cart pod. Okay. And as I was doing the due diligence, the city of Portland was working on this new code, but they weren't telling me this, right? So I'm meeting with planners and like, hey, this is what I want to do. Oh, yeah, we don't have a code. You know, you, mm. you, this is what the other people have been doing. So just do what they're doing. Something's in the works. 
And they're the, <laughs> they're using yeah. you as a case study. Fuck, we need yeah. to write some new code. Uh, we you saw know, this application from Mike Nuss. I think we need to sit down and have a talk. About we it. may we, this may need to be a regular segment because I've got some <laughs> deals like this too, where I'm the case study for the entire city of fucking state, Portland, one the state of Oregon. Um, but yeah, so they're working on this code in the back, and then I buy it, and then we develop. Oh well, we need some drawings for a site plan, and then I go to submit it. Oh well, now we have this ninety-page code. So in that scenario, it's like, well, fuck. So, okay, well, now we're going to sell this property. But <laughs> l- nicely, we had some other deals lined up. So that one was, okay, now we're going to sell it. We do, and then exchange into a couple others. And that was funny because the person I bought it from, so we made 200 grand on that, and a wholesaler made a lot of money, and then I used that money to buy another property from them. And they were so cool. He's like, oh, you made that much money? Yeah, good. You made that money on my property. Well, why don't you buy this one and make that type? So Love that's it. so what's yeah. so cool about real estate. Yeah. Um, Others, you know, is just like I got one. It was a seller finance deal and they wanted a lot, a big down payment. And I was like looking at the portfolio. Well, this, I don't like this one. This one's vacant. This one's kind of hard to lease based on where it's located and the income that that unit should generate, but it makes a great sale. So let's just sell that one and then delay closing here based on this sale. So a lot of it comes where you're like, here's a really good property to buy. I don't have the resources for it right now. Just can we wait a couple months? And then you go find one to sell. Yeah. And then we've just kind of sold what made sense. But I do want to get intentional about it and say, okay, identify this is really the property I want to sell this year. Mm-hmm. Trading stock. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like 1031. They used to just trade deeds in the yeah. 80s. They, yeah. You know, they didn't have these parameters of yeah. it goes to an intermediary right. and you don't touch the money and you swap them. Yeah. You just swap deed for deed. Right. So, Exchangers. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for doing a deep deal dive with us this morning. Uh, I'm Gabe Johansson. I'm here with Mike Nuss and Dane McKinney. We'll say that this episode was brought to you by Rare Bird Real Estate and Property Management, Mike's company for him so graciously giving us this lesson. Uh, some of us don't have the heart to go out and develop and take on the city <laughs> to bring beautiful housing to our fellow citizens. So thank you, Mike, for what you do. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.